If we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? This is the most common question associated with a misunderstanding of evolution. So, how does it work? What evidence do we have to suggest evolution exists? Is it solid evidence? What even is evolution? Shanti's here as our representative of those of you with a naturally curious mind, and I am D.R. Cox, scientist and researcher for the last decade in regenerative medicine, vaccines, and nanoparticles. And this week, we're joined again by synthetic biologist Dr. Sonia Iverson. And this is Breaking Bad Science. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like your cat evolved to interrupt our meeting. <laughs> okay, so I've got a couple of announcements real quick. So first, we received an email from probably the best fan that we have. Our very first patron, she's the greatest. So uh, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it real quick. So she's talking about the episode on global warming. And what she said is, I love the episode, especially the conversation about the evolving language that we use to talk about climate change. Even just the shift from global warming to climate change inherently sparks a deeper conversation, though the core concept is the same. What really piqued my curiosity was the slightly devolved conversation about the lizard people under the Denver airport actually being Xenu. Coincidentally, I just watched Going Clear, a documentary about people leaving Scientology. At the risk of potentially landing on Tom Cruise's radar, admit it, we all think it would be funny, are there any plans to do an episode about cultism and the sociological, physiological reasons people fall victim to cults? I feel like it was very briefly touched on in the Science of Influence episode, but I find it fascinating that so many otherwise intelligent people end up entangled in cults. All right, so I, I think so. I think it could be an interesting episode. Um, some of the concepts of, you know, the reasons that, that people fall for those types of things. Um, and there is no doubt that that's exactly what Scientology is, is a cult. Please don't sue us, Tom Cruise. I, I like how they threw an ology after science and just like they tried <laughs> yeah. to do. Because anytime you throw an ology after anything, right, it sounds a little more Oh, and yes. science is already like sophisticated enough, so it's like they try to get extra sophisticated, like science plus ology, Scientology, <laughs> boom, and it's the most unsophisticated yeah. thing I've ever heard. So I think it would be interesting. Um, definitely something we should probably look at doing in the future. I'm game, and actually, we could we could uh, dip into some of our contacts back in Montana because there was the Universal Church in Bozeman. I know some people that were involved in that. The Universal Church. What is that? It was one of those um, doomsday religious groups that was like out in the woods, building their own community, oh, their own license right. plates, their own driver's license, yeah. holding weapons. The, pre the preachers got to name all the kids. That's how Max boyfriend got named. That's right. Oh, yeah. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, so that, it could be very interesting, you know, learning a little bit about those types of cults and, and things like that. So we can definitely look into it in the future. So Cassie, thank you for that. Thank, thank you for being such a fantastic fan of the show. Thanks, Kathy. And then, Love you. Uh, let's talk about the state of Virginia real quick. So, we have... Wait, wait, do you mean the state of Virginia as in the territory, or the state of Virginia as in, like, what's going on? Um, the, the, the actual state of Virginia. So, in, man, September, I think it was, we had a sudden, huge burst of people listening to the Correlation versus Causation episode. And it was all centered around Virginia. So somebody came up with the theory that we have a teacher 
or something that listens to the podcast and decided to try to get them to listen to that episode. Now, it seemed like a reasonable thought at the time. Well, now, in February, the exact same thing just happened again. We had a huge spike in listens of that episode in uh, in and around Virginia. So, is is that what's going on? Do we have a teacher that's listening to the podcast? If or you're is the it person a cult following? Yeah, yeah. If if so, if you have any idea, you know what's what the Richmond, Virginia, the state of Virginia thing is. I, I want to know. I want to know why we have this sort of regular spike uh, in that area. Uh, so write us feedback at breakingbadscience.com. I, I'd love to hear from you and, and find out if there's there's some crazy thing that that's going on with the podcast in that area. So my personal thought is that we just had it wrong the whole time. The lizard people weren't under Denver Airport. <laughs> they are in Richmond, and have you been to exactly. Richmond? That actually kind of fits. <laughs> I have not been just there, saying. so I can't say. It all ties together now. All right, so. Evolution. As yep. I mentioned on the uh, intro, we brought in synthetic biologist Dr. Sonia Iverson again. Uh, we talked to her on the update to the genetic engineering episode when we talked about He Jong Kui. Don't even remember if I said that right in- anymore. Um, and his research. Uh, Genetically engineered babies. Exactly. Yeah. So um, we figured it was appropriate to bring in somebody who understands how to manipulate genetics in order to talk about how nature does exactly that. So, um, Sonia, I know you introduced yourself a little bit on the previous episode, but why don't you tell a little bit about yourself and, and why this is probably a reasonable episode for you to be on. Sure. So, as Dan said, my name is Sonia. You got that part. We went to college and high school together. I got my PhD at Boston University in cell and molecular biology and um, biochemistry. And basically, genetics has kind of always been my primary game in science. So um, I've worked as a genetic engineer in a couple of different types of research um, over the last 20 years. And yeah, this is it's kind of my thing. And so genetics, uh, genetic engineering encompasses so much. And a lot of what we do is actually mimicking evolution. Uh, we do what we call like directed evolution or kind of borrowing from how evolution works to do a lot of our research. So let's let's talk about, or can you sort of expand on what synthetic biology is and why you know that is a sort of reasonable tie-in to the idea of genetics? Yeah, so, so synthetic biology, it's, it's kind of a fun uh, term. I've always been entertained by how like genetic engineering had kind of a bad rap, but then when it was sort of rebranded as synthetic biology, everyone was like, oh, that sounds cool. <laughs> But the reality is, like, synthetic biology is not just uh, genetic engineering, but it's basically taking an engineering mindset and um, and then, like, knowledge of biology and kind of just running with that. So it could be anything from biomimicry, like trying to build electronics that mimic how biology works, for example, or genetic engineering, but doing so in a more um, engineering-focused mindset of, like, making DNA parts that you can recombine as if they were, like, bricks in a, in a, a building or something. It's, like, a, it's kind of an all-encompassing topic in terms of what does it actually mean. And my favorite definition I found when I was in grad school was that it was the combination of biology and engineering to create useful things. Okay. So I always I my introduction to it was the South Park. When they made the monkey with three asses, that was 
<laughs> yeah. What does... Uh, no, we probably shouldn't talk about who that guy is, actually, on this episode. Uh, maybe in the after hours. Monkey was... <laughs> That monkey was thick with two C's, I'll tell you. Oh, but geez. that that is yeah. That's that that's probably why genetic engineering also got a bad rap. I mean genetic got uh, genetic engineering mostly got a bad rap because of Monsanto and, and Roundup Ready and a couple other things. But yeah. like And Craig yeah. Venter, honestly. Yeah. Um I mean, the guy has done a lot of good for genetic engineering and oh, he's you a- know, genome research in general, but he's an interesting character to be at the forefront of the field. We've talked about it previously, you know, he's a fantastic scientist and a huge dick, and and that's honestly, you know, the problem with... But you don't have to believe that? No. Uh, All right. problem with scientists in, you know, sort of this day yeah. and age is does that... It, does, it, does your scientist? lizards? Yeah, it does. And we're trying to, we're trying to debunk <laughs> lizard people conspiracies on this podcast yeah. and look at you. Yeah. Yeah, it says it, it says a secret meaning to it. I'm sure, and it even says it says now, cult of now, the curious. Now the conspiracy <laughs> is that you are actually the, I, the spokesperson I hope for so. the lizard people, and you're just trying to keep yeah everything hidden. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Good job. Oh, Good it's job, all man. a false flag. We're discrediting everything we worked. <laughs> no, <laughs> there is our evolution. A lot of information Sorry. on things like the lizard people and things like that. Uh, if you listen to the podcast Time Suck, which is what this shirt is from, it says Time Suck on the back. I see. But yeah, um, and it's not a shirt; it's a baseball jersey that says Lizards. So let's just get that straight. Sorry, I didn't know <laughs> the Lizard people had a baseball team. All right. So first, let's talk about the question: the if we evolved from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? And the issue associated with that statement. So maybe we should, maybe we need to really sort of step back and, and talk about how this evolution occurs. Uh, I mean, I think people sort of understand, you mentioned earlier that, you know, genes change over time and that those genetic shifts create different species. And essentially, you know, what Darwin talks about is the idea that those species are always in competition. And so if somebody evolves to have or you know has a genetic change that makes them a little bit stronger a little bit better against something you know maybe it's a predator maybe it's an environment if they're a little bit better they're more likely to survive and that's sort of the strength uh strongest survive type of mentality that uh that everything darwin talks about is centered on and that's where we talk talked about the moths in england that we brought up before that went from peppered moths to black moths and back to, uh, or was it the other way around? Went from black to peppered to black. I don't remember exactly, but, um, but yeah, so they, uh, those moths are a very quick within our timeline depiction of exactly that concept. The idea that a small evolution, you know, changes the, the strength with which you are able to survive in a given, given setting. And so that's sort of the overall concept that leads to how this evolution occurs. So the question is, how do we then go from things like monkeys to humans? And, and or bananas. Or bananas. Bananas is a great, great one as well. Uh, it's bananas did not look and, and we're not the fruit that, that we see now. And, and the same with corn when we first began domesticating corn. 
And I think we talked a little bit about that type of stuff on, on the genetic engineering. But what I want to mention here is the concept that a something that I think scientists more recently discovered, and that's that there can be significant changes in genetics suddenly. And that is something that wasn't always well understood, I think, and is sort of that missing link between what scientists know and understand versus what the general population knows and understands. You know, I think the general population still believes in that concept that, you know, a slight changes over time eventually lead to to something different. But what we know now is that some creatures may suddenly go from having two copies of their genome, like we as humans do, to all of a sudden having four copies of their genome. And it's, what is the name for that? I don't remember the, the term for this, but essentially they go to having, you know, four copies of their entire genome. And normally that would be uh, detrimental to the, to the creature and, and it wouldn't survive it. But in some cases, the genome remaps itself in order for that creature to survive. And then over time, it starts losing different genetics associated with all four of those uh, copies until mm -hmm. it's back down to two copies of the genome. But at that point, it's now a completely different species. Yeah, and the reason that works, so first, uh, one of the, the terms around that is called ploidy. It's how many copies of chromosomes yeah. do you have? And wheat, actually, is a great example of that. If I remember right, I think they have six copies. Yeah, they are hap uh, haploid, I think is the term. No, haploid is a single. Uh, it, it'd be like a sexploid or something. Hectoploid. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, um, but they have six copies of their genome. They only actually need technically like one, maybe two copies, depending on what the gene does. And so those other copies then can mutate at a higher rate because if they're broken, it doesn't hurt the plant. Um, and sometimes those mutations end up being advantageous, and then that becomes the gene that it primarily uses, and maybe it gets passed to offspring, and then that's the, the version of the gene that, that propagates in the population. Uh, and so... Like, having multiple copies, that's how a lot of evolution in humans has happened, too, is we have what we call pseudogenes, where on a smaller level, a small section of your chromosome might get duplicated, now you have two copies of the same gene, and that those two copies can evolve differently. One copy remains functional, one copy kind of becomes a sandbox to play with. Yeah. Um, in, a, in a less formal sense than that, it's not exactly intentional. But um, that's how our, our red-green and uh, color vision showed up. Red and green are the same gene, and what they would duplicate and evolve slightly differently. Interesting. Which explains why, you know, that's one of the um, things that's so easy for people to start getting uh, unable to differentiate. Uh, so the term that I was looking for is, is gene duplication, It's which seems obvious now. But <laughs> it's a, it's a gene du duplication event. And we have um, several points in history where we know that those types of events have happened. Um, and they've led to significant diversity of the population. And one of those is when three different types of mammals were created. And that is the marsupials, the, uh, what is the, what are we? Placental? Placental. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think placental mammals, marsupials, and the, what is the duck-billed platypus called? The, um, marmot? Not marmot, no. Uh, I always forget the name of that one, too. Yeah. It's like, there's only, what, like, two species in it? I think there's, like, th three, but yeah, it's, it's two or three. I'll try to look it up, too. <laughs> Head knows this one. What type of mammal is the platypus? Monotremes. Monotremes is the word. Yeah. Thanks. So there's monotremes, placental mammals, and marsupials. And apparently, monotremes, or at least platypuses, glow in black light. 
I read that the other day. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they are the greatest creature on the planet. They really are. I, uh... It's, we're we're going to find out they all know, like, three languages, actually. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, tie-in to come back to later. Another great example of evolution is how um, evolution in the hot pots of Yellowstone gave us a means for testing for COVID. Interesting. Tack. Okay. Where did tack come from? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the... So the point there is that we know that these these huge splits happen. So when we talk about the whole kind of uh, evolving from monkeys thing, it's not really what happened. What happened is that we evolved from the same tree as monkeys did. And one of these events created a different sort of species. You know, some of them might have been gorillas. Some of them might have been, you know, uh, ended up being orangutans. You know, all of these different things. They essentially evolved from the same tree, but these gene duplication events separated us into very different creatures associated with that, and then we evolved more readily from there. Curious what, like, we all evolved from, like, what was the common ancestor? Because they would have had to have been somewhere genetically between us, a gorilla, uh, a a chimpanzee, chimpanzee. like, I, I just wonder what traits. And so I guess yeah. with the gene duplication, um, this seems like it's a bit of an acute event. And I apologize. I had to wrestle a toy from a, a squeaky toy from uh, my brother's dog's mouth for like the past three minutes. So <laughs> got a little tuned down. But I just want to be clear. Like, so the gene duplication seems like it's somewhat of an acute event. And then it's like it happened. It's a blip. It happened. And then things kind of hit this cadence of a very small, um, change here a very small change there yep but then like every every i i don't know the number of generations i don't even know it it doesn't sound like there's a recorded number over which this happens but every so often you just have this snap of the fingers and suddenly whoa the course changed quite a bit i I just want to get the read right is that kind of in in essence how it happens yeah and one of the larger events probably uh happened during the time of uh what is this uh, species called Artipicleus Artipicleus uh, um, genus of an extinct hominin that lived during the late Miocene and early Pilocene epochs in the Afar Depression, Ethiopia uh, originally described as one of the earliest ancestors of humans after they diverged from the chimpanzee line. So we have one of the or we, we have fossils from that version of the, the species that, that sort of is where it, it really started to branch off and then um, we started to develop things like stone tools with another species of, of homo or not homo sapien but a um, human type species that at that point was then already much different from the apes essentially. I, th- I think that's one of the things that kind of confuses people sometimes about evolution especially when we talk about evolution of humans species because like we visualize it we look at monkey we look at us and we're like okay how did we get here but it wasn't just like it wasn't an overnight thing and it wasn't just a single branch on a tree right. um it's multiple branches some of them are dead and ended some of them interbreed and like recombine yeah i think it's it, it's important to point out that there is significant evidence that uh, neanderthals already existed and then what we all what we originally knew as early humans uh, actually came north into the Neanderthal territory and interbreeding with Neanderthals created 
most of the white races of our species come from interbreeding with Neanderthals, uh, early man interbreeding with Neanderthals. So, how about that little piece of evolution? That is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, it's actually leads to more COVID talk, uh, which I saw an article. I haven't looked into the science behind it, but there is indication that genes from the Neanderthal part of um, those races may be why they're more resistant to COVID and why COVID hit the uh, minority populations in our country much worse and hit some other countries much worse is because they have, uh, they don't have that, uh, the genes from, from the Neanderthal side. I mean, that's, I feel like there's still like, it's tough because you still have to look at the economic factors as well as that. Oh, absolutely. I guess there's a potential lead there because it's so hard to test that in a lab. But you're, you're not, I mean, you're looking at that the wrong way, right? We're not talking about how many have died and, and things like that because, yeah, that's, that can be socioeconomically linked. We're talking about the percentage of people that had a severe COVID reaction. And that's, you know, um, so that, that is, you know, able to be seen, right? If, if you end up in severe, then, you know, we're able to track that regardless yeah. of socioeconomic status. True, but yeah. severe, is severe is still an acute response. Is that still not linked to any pre-existing conditions or... I mean, like the, you have to control for all those factors to do the analysis. ...on a regular sure. basis? Yeah, so, so as um, Sonia said, you know, you have to... When doing that analysis, you have to control for all those factors, right? So if you say... You know, and, and this is what what we're looking at. If you've got, you know, a smoker who has diabetes, you know, and a smoker who has diabetes and is a, in in the minority within our country, the oh, you know, you're you're comparing those two things. And and yeah. in the end, when you do that meta analysis, the minority groups were actually hit much harder um, with with severe reactions. Yeah, but then extracting that, then you have to also then control for socioeconomic differences versus genetic differences. Like, you need some huge population data to do that kind of work, which upside of a pan- of a global pandemic, I guess, is that we have lots of numbers to look at. We have a ton of data. Yeah, there's no doubt. So That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah so, you know, that's the 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 focal point of, you know, that, that conversation and, and the misunderstanding associated with the whole monkeys thing is that we didn't evolve from monkeys. We didn't go from apes to us. You know, we it's a divergence in the tree, right? Um, it's basically we split into different things. And and that is sort of the most important part to, to really understand. So and, and a lot of those different splits are dead end branches that don't go anywhere yeah. and don't exist anymore. Yep. And and you know, a lot of those species never survived yeah. or, or you basically survived. only see the success stories. Yeah. Yep. Did you did you guys ever read the book um, *Sapiens*? I think by was it Yuval Noah Harari was the author of that one. I haven't read it, but I've, I've it. seen it. Yeah, that, there's a there's an interesting piece on that one about a there was likely a species of hominids that were like like miniature, like literally like three to four feet in stature, oh. and all lived. I can't remember where, but there's like some sort of fossil evidence that this is very we potentially have like a, a race of hobbits. Some point that existed within the past, like mm-hmm. uh, maybe like two hundred thousand years or something like that. Yeah, uh, I what? That was uh, interesting. I was at a museum not that long ago. Um, oh, I think it was the Natural History Museum in the Smithsonian, and yeah. their human evolution branch, like they they have a whole room dedicated to human evolution, and they have all of those species that we found even parts of mm-hmm. and uh, fossils of. 
And I will tell you, absolutely, you know, we have at least some fossils from uh, species that would have been, yeah, about three to four feet tall of early so humans. It's so interesting. I, I guess really what it comes down to is like you kind of have this lineage with a bunch of branches here, branches there. And it's, it's not like a straight line. It kind of staggers down. Yep. It, all it is is like for every one branch that goes a couple, for, that goes, you know, 10,000, 100,000 years, or, or I don't know what the time period, maybe it's a million years, there's like five or six that just go nowhere. And maybe they even have a little bit of time in the spotlight. They do pretty decently yeah. in certain climates. And maybe a volcano blows up and their population is too small. Well, I think, and I think that's a critical thing. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, something acute happens. So a lot of mutations that happen are silent. They go on for generations. They might expand a little bit if, if in a population just randomly. Um, and, and they have no benefit until something dramatic happens, until the climate shifts, until a meteor hits and changes the local environment, until there's, um, uh, until there's a... I catch you know, it, now, now I get what you're saying. Like, all these, all these silent mutations happen, and they're not even an advantage until they just are. Exactly. Or the same thing happens in the opposite direction, right? Like, a lot of these silent mutations happen, and then before you know it, everyone's allergic to this weird new form of pollen that just got released, and they all die from, like, an Reaction, but it just silently crept up over time. That sure. might be like an exaggeration, but like an exaggerated idea of how it works in either direction. Yeah, so like the way like evolution is random. There's no there's no guiding principle in the actual action of a mutation. It can be caused yeah. by the environment. Like for example, say there is a volcano eruption that might create a lot more carcinogens in the air and the environment that cause animals and whatnot to mutate faster. But those mutations are happening randomly. They're not targeted. They're not intentional. And but the majority of them are probably are not going to do anything. Are those kind of still, and those attribute to um, evolution, though, or are those just kind of like these kind of acute mutations that die off the place? I mean, that is basically like, how evolution works. It's, it's random mutation, whether it's sparked by environmental changes or not. Like, most of the time, the environmental changes will reveal a mutation that exists, but something like yeah. a, a volcano, in, which pr would produce a lot of carcinogens, because any, basically anything burned is carcinogenic. Um, so, you know, it's something like that could increase the rate of mutation. Increasing the global temperature can increase the rate of mutation, uh, for example. It's almost, it's, almost, it's almost like when you put us in a pressure cooker, we change faster. <laughs> something like that. Like, you boil a frog, nothing happens, but if you throw a frog into the pot, it jumps out real quick. Well, and, you know, I think that it's a little bit of a misunderstanding. The idea is that some of those changes already exist. What happens is that a new um, setting arises that causes that mutation to matter more, right? And so something like maybe you are heat resistant. And now if we throw 20 frogs into the pod and one of them survives, it's because that one was heat resistant. Mm -hmm. And now he's the only one that survived. Yeah, Ooh, but can I run with the heat resistant thing? So. Yeah. So heat resistance and, and like extreme environments is actually a really interesting aspect of evolution. And Danny and I basically grew up near Yellowstone. So we grew up with like hot pots kind of being a thing. The university we went to had a lot of people who studied in Yellowstone. And one of the really cool things that happens in extreme environments is it, you know, it might take some time, but there's a really strong environmental pressure to be able to grow in an acidic pot, like basically an acidic pool of liquid in Yellowstone hot pots, or in a high temperature hot pot, a geyser, like there, you will find some sort of living organism, usually a virus or bacteria or something like that, in just about any environment, because over millions and millions of years, like everything has had time to try and evolve to a situation. 
So one of my favorite things about evolution and speaking of hot uh, temperatures is uh, Thermus aquaticus, which is a bacteria that was discovered in the hot pots of Yellowstone. And basically evolution in extreme environments is particularly interesting because you have this extreme pressure to survive in high acidity, high salt, high temperature, or freezing temperature, for example. Um, and you get, you know, what I was saying before about, like, when there's some kind of an extreme event, like a volcano eruption or whatever, it draws out the mutations. That's when you actually see the beneficial mutations, um, have, when you can actually affect. Well, in the hot pots, you can find some really cool stuff. And Thermus aquaticus is a bacteria that was discovered in the 70s in, in Yellowstone. And what's really neat about it is that it grows at really high temperatures. And it's happy at really high temperatures. And that was surprising to people who studied genetics back at that point because part of how, when our cells replicate, we have to replicate our DNA. And the way that we do that is by having proteins whose job it is to find DNA, um, separate the two strands, and make a copy of each strand, basically. And that's called a polymerase. Um, there's also polymerases that work on RNA. But What's really neat about this is um, these proteins, uh, sorry, these uh, proteins, polymerases uh, normally work at normal body temperature, and temperature actually influences how well DNA can bind to itself. Uh, the higher temperature, DNA tends to separate. It's a chemical reaction. And so the, the idea that you could have a polymerase that worked really well at high temperatures was unexpected. Well, then somebody had a really cool idea of how to use that, and this is kind of a synthetic biology sort of thing, even though that term didn't exist back then, of how you can use a polymerase from a bacteria that grows at high temperatures. PCR, polymerase chain reaction. So by alternating temperatures, you can split your DNA strands apart and then use this high temperature polymerase to replicate the strands. And if you do that in cycles, where you go high temperature, low temperature, medium temperature, high temperature, over and over again, you get this chemical reaction where you can um, amplify the amount of DNA that you have in a, in a tube. That is basically the basis of the qPCR tests that we use now for detecting COVID. Yeah. So wow. there's the biology and evolution for you. Yeah. So that just, sounds cool. Just so to, can we can, can we create lizard people with that? <laughs> <laughs> just I'll talk to, to George Church about it. Just to break that down a little bit, essentially what you're looking at is the evolution in this extreme environment, as she said, led to a finding of a protein that was stable in this extreme environment. And that protein allowed us to amplify DNA, which we wouldn't have been able to do before. And that's how we use it. But the species itself actually evolved that protein in order for it to survive. It needed to be capable of, you know, producing or replicating its own DNA in that extreme environment. And to do that, it, it evolved this polymerase that we now use. Nope. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, right, isn't the, the thesis that, like, life on Earth started in those kind of underwater vents where, like, a lot of, like, was it, was, it wasn't lava, but it was, like, hot, it was heat coming from um, underwater volcanoes, essentially, right? Or, explain to me, but, but that's pretty much the hypothesis is that's how the first bacteria on the planet were formed, right? Yeah, but my I don't know what temperature those hot, those um, pockets would have been because hot at that time was relative, and I think most of the Earth was much colder. It's okay. hotter than you would think, yeah. actually. Yeah, so uh, methane pockets, even now, um, un underneath the sea, are a fascinating environment. So wait, it, methane pockets? Yeah. So, so do you have like do you have like meth head fish out there? Like, <laughs> going to get methane, their like meth what cows meth produce? Methane, <laughs> not methamphetamine. 
That's a different Yeah, that's that's more like uh certain portions of cities are, are methamphetamine pockets. So no <laughs> Okay. Alright, so in this in the bottom of the sea they have these vents that you're talking about. And essentially what they do is they vent out very, very hot gases. And what that creates is as that gas expands out of there, it begins to cool. And because it's constantly doing that, you actually have a dome almost produced that it increases in temperature towards the center. And so things that are very close to the center can't survive even, you know, a few feet away from that from that point. And so you have this, you know, difference in species of, you know, bacteria and things like that that can survive all throughout this this bubble, essentially. And it's all sort of different. Like segmented. Yeah. So you have this this perfect area for evolution, because if something is able to suddenly go a little bit farther away or a little bit closer, it now has a larger range to get nutrients, you know, to find new nutrients. But it has this protective bubble of it can mutate either direction. Right. And so, you know, that's it's it, it makes sense that that's where life would evolve from because you have a high source of energy, you have a high source of nutrients, and you have, you know, uh, from the methane and, the, and uh, so you have carbon and things like that. So you have a, a large source of, of nutrients, you have a large source of energy, and then you have this, you know, quickly shifting environment in a very small space and then the first creature capable of leaving that space would have been you know would have suddenly had access to all sorts of things that nothing else had ever had access to right i'm just gonna pull one of these like just ate a weed brownie moments but like i'm just like thinking about how that is basically an underwater replica of the solar system and how all the planets are closer or further out. They all have different elements and such. And hypothetically speaking, if we start leaving the Earth and going to different planets, that is almost an intergalactic mimicry of what those little bacteria did. And maybe that is some crazy way in which life from planet Earth evolves. Oh. And yeah, I mean, our, our whole universe is just some alien kid playing with marbles, right? And And so... You know, what what you're talking about is we have to find planets in that case in what's called the habitable zone, habitable zone, essentially, which is the distance from the sun, from that planet's specific star that it's rotating around where water is liquid. And essentially, it's not too cold and it's not too hot for our species to survive. Yeah, Which, but what about it if we separate planets and over millions of years speciation happens, and then as we go to Mars and we go further out, we can start living on gas and not water. So well, why do you yeah. think every sci-fi movie has humanoid characters from all these different planets? A budgeting reasons, and B because that's exactly what would happen is if, if humans are expanding to other planets, we would have separate evolutionary paths in each planet, each um, environment. The uh, actually, I I started watching a show called The Expanse, and even I've only seen the first episode. But even in the first episode, they really cover that. Um, there's, you know, a certain species of human that has never been on Earth. They've been basically in deep space their entire existence. And they are huge, like nine feet tall. Because they don't have gravity But they have no, down. You know, very little <laughs> muscular structure. So, like, if you put them in a gravity They're environment, mean. 
they can't even hold up their own body because that's you know that they've those who survived you know the best were the ones who had additional reach and things like that so Mm -hmm. it's you know kind of a, a a smaller version of that but yeah you know if we were to go to mars right and we started having a an environment there well we may be we may you know eventually have somebody capable of stepping outside onto mars you know hundreds of thousands of years from now right, right. and you know that may be because we've helped change the environment there a little bit but there may be there will be some people if we're trying to terraform mars there will be some people capable of stepping out onto the planet earlier than everybody else and that's evolution yeah, that's something we already see on earth is people who evolved people whose cultures evolved in say africa you know, tend to have darker skin part of the benefit of that darker skin is that they're more um, resistant to uv rays less likely to get skin cancer opposite you look at northern european cultures they have lighter skin because they had less sunlight exposure um just evolutionary changes you can also have changes in like how our bodies regulate temperature how our bodies handle different amounts of moisture or whatever and i i need to look up the article and I'll, I'll link it if i find it but um and and if the science is good but i also saw an article recently that we may have found a genetic link to um, cold temperature resistance which would indicate that we actually have the gene we know to be responsible for those people who you know walk outside in the middle of winter with their flip-flops on Oh, it makes you know? total sense. I wouldn't be surprised if that was a gene related to, like, um, vessel dilation. Yeah. Vessel dilation. It, yeah, it very, very likely is. I just realized that at some point we have to do an episode, and it's not. It's going to be a purely a hypothetical one of what the evolutions would be after 100,000 years on bars. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, that's a, maybe that's a good Patreon podcast one. The same. That'd or, be a good one. But, yeah, I really like this winter. idea. It's, it, it's so interesting how, how that kind of all works out. It just, like, I don't know. There's just so much now that's going through my head. I'm like, oh, okay. That's kind of, it, evolution, like, it still falls in line with what we're all taught in school, but there's just so many little kind of pieces to it that um, that really weren't accounted for. One yeah. thing I'm actually curious about is the way that um, the environment impacts the realization of genetics. And we've touched on it a bit with extreme environments, but I've heard things along the lines of like, okay, like two twins grow up in two entirely different environments that they, they, they're identical twins, but they don't turn out the same. Yeah. Or like, is it like the genome versus the phenome? Yeah. I, so, I'm not a scientist. So let's, are, so let's talk about two different that. things with that. So the first is, you know, let's cover again. The, those moths that we talked about in the genetic engineering episode for those people who didn't listen to that, right? So yep. this is the actual genome we're talking about, where essentially what what you're referring to, those types of changes that are genetic changes, are when, you know, you've got these species of moths, right? And they were peppered moths, so they were black and white. And so when they landed on these specific trees in England, it was hard for birds to see them. And then the Industrial Revolution came in and it started creating, you know, soot all over the area that they lived in. And now the trees, and now the trees looked much more black. And now the peppered moth became just starkly white, almost looking against it. 
and the birds were able to just pick them off. Well, one of those moths evolved to look completely black. It just happened to be born looking completely black. Which could probably, it could either have been a uh, damage to the gene that made the white color, uh, or the creation of a new gene, but more likely damage to the white color. Right. And so that species, when it was against a tree, now would fade in completely, and all of those peppered moths were the ones the birds were able to grab. So then that black species flourished, and its new gene became the most predominant gene. Well, then we had this revolution where we needed to stop, you know, destroying the environment. And we started reducing carbon output. And guess what? Those trees started to look peppered again. And now the black moth became the most obvious creature on the tree. And the birds started picking them off. And so in the time frame of a couple hundred years, we've documented evidence of these moths going from peppered to black back to peppered. That's evolution in just a couple hundred years time frame. I think it's even less than a hundred years, primarily. Because the, the thing I'm looking at says in uh, 1848 was the first recorded discovery of the okay, black yeah. one. And then I, by like 1900, um, it went back to peppered. Yeah, so I was thinking 1800. So that's why I was thinking a couple hundred years. But I guess, yeah, it's still yeah, yeah. like 150 well, some, somewhere years. Somewhere in the 1900s or, it went back. Uh, yeah. So... Essentially, you know, that's what you're talking about when you're talking about genetics. However, when you're talking about the twins, you're talking about something completely different, and that is epigenetics. It's small changes that happen over time, and those aren't actually genetic changes. The genes still look identical. Though if we look um, from a genetic standpoint, those identical twins are still identical. However, from an epigenetic standpoint, the twins are born looking identical epigenetically, but by the time they're in their, you know, 50s, you wouldn't even know from their epigenetics that they're even the same, even close to the same. So, say one of them grew up in a, a healthy vegetarian family, and the other grew up in a family that ate lots of candy and lots of meat, for example. That would have massive changes on the epigenetics of their metabolism, their insulin production all these other things, those genes aren't easy to change in, in an adult. Like, you don't really change multiple cells. You only change one cell if you have a mutation, so it generally doesn't have a massive change. But the epigenetics can be changed in a larger scale. Yeah. And so that would explain, like, they might look very different in terms of weight or height or whatever based on how they grew up and what they ate as adults. And, and all sorts of things can change associated with that. So epigenetics are controlling things that, that we didn't, you know, we never really... Um, understood and we're only really beginning to understand so like aging is likely epigenetically controlled if we can control epigenetics we may be able to control aging so right i, I just want i want a clear answer on this is wine and coffee good for long life or bad <laughs> it's like every pop sci article comes out says one or the other there's no consistency just, just tell me can i have my wine and my coffee <laughs> we we haven't covered that yet <laughs> so but yeah so it's epigenetics that you're talking about and it can be influenced by toxicity in the environment and that includes you know um, things like um, abuse it includes toxins you know that you ingest it includes you know your diet all of these different things to a point where it would be virtually impossible to take two identical twins have them survive for 50 years and have them look anywhere close to the same 
epigenetically by the time that they're in their 50s. They they just won't be the same person because they can't be exposed to the exact same things. Although some people would argue there's these twin studies where people have very similar twins that were separated and like given up for adoption separately, for example, that have very similar behaviors and, and maybe even look very similar. Yeah. But I think that gets into a different conversation about nature versus nurture and how much of their genetics influenced their behaviors. And then those behaviors might influence where they live, whether or not it's a toxic environment, Absolutely. what they eat, etc. But epigenetically, uh, so they, they could look the same. Epigenetically, they would not. not. There's no way. They're, That's fair. The epigenetic markers might be different, but the yeah. physical view of them is yeah. probably going to still yeah, be they similar. Yeah, they may look, they may act very similar, but mm. if you look at them epigenetically, they will still be completely different. And that's, no, that's the epigenetics. That's this yeah. sort of new environment that we're learning about where we can not change the genes themselves, but change the genes that are expressed or, or how often they're expressed or how much, or how much they're, they're expressed. Yeah. And so we don't make changes to the genetics itself. We make changes how to how the body utilizes those genetics. Actually, it's a fun um, evolutionary and, and like research topic on that. Um, I got the story from a, a lab I used to work in, and I've looked at the paper since. But there was a research group uh, maybe 30 years ago that was studying these certain genes, uh, the, the Cox gene, that are involved in how your fingers um, develop, how like the length of your finger bone. And they were hypothesizing that if they took the Hox genes from a bat and they put them into a mouse, that the mouse should grow long fingers. <laughs> and they tried that, and they were disappointed that the mice didn't actually grow long fingers. And they're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Until it occurred to them that maybe it wasn't the gene itself that was any different, yeah, but it was how, well, the regulation, yeah. not, oh, not yeah, yeah, the yeah. epigenetics, but how much of it was turned on, when it was turned on. And so they took the region in front of the gene that tends to control Promoter. So, the promoter and enhancer region that tends to control how much of it's made when and where, and that is influenced by epigenetics, but they just took the sequence of that, minus epigenetics, moved that into the mice, and lo and behold, they had mice with long, scary fingers. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrifying. Uh, probably also why, like, the best athletes in the world all start young. Oh, for you sure. Know? Yeah, yeah, because you, you start to make those epigenetic changes that, that help, you know, develop into, you know, mm -hmm. more athletically... Uh, focused. And, and some of those changes might get passed to your offspring. Like yeah. That's where, like, Lamar I mentioned before we started, I think, was that, like, Lamarckian genetics used to be the, like, predominant thought of how sort of evolution happened. If you had a giraffe that was reaching for taller and taller trees, then its offspring would have longer and longer necks. Um, and when uh, Darwin came along and actually, like, started showing evolution of, of birds and whatnot, um, and the Dar Darwinian theory of evolution kind of became the predominant view, everyone's like, oh, Lamarck was an idiot. Reality, like Lamarckian theory, is probably actually still part of what's going on. It's just epigenetics. Is that that? Is, is that you? You kind of pass on like a benchmark of the epigenetics you achieve to your offspring. Yep. And yeah. then they can they 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 they're born with sort of this increased expression of certain genes due to your epigenetics. Exactly. Yeah. So like if, if your grandmother was an alcoholic, cool. that might reflect in your in your epigenetics. Yeah. So so this is where we talked about. Um, the oh identical my God, twins. Sorry, I just had a thought. But what if someone had a baby when they were 18 and then another baby when they were 40 and their lifestyles were just totally okay, different at those Even better points? experiment? What if they froze their eggs at 18 and, and did like a, if you could do like a fertilized embryo, split that, like like sometimes happens to make twins, for example, and then freeze both eggs and have one at each at 18 and one at 48. So you have a genetically identi identical baby being, you know, grown in the mom 20 years apart. Yeah, except for the epigenetics will already be in place. 
So that's what I'm saying, though. So how much of the baby would change based on the mom's epigenetic or the mom's uh, biology 20 years later? Right. Yeah. So so the point there is that you know, like when we talked about the the identical twins, their epigenetics will be identical at birth because it is influenced by the mother and father's epigenetics. Yeah, it happens so at a very, will, very early stage. Yeah, so that will happen in the as soon as the egg is basically fertilized. I, I, I'm not, or, it's, it's a little bit later. It's, no, yeah, it's, so uh, it wouldn't work at like a, a four or eight cell stage. I think it's at the blastocyst stage. That's is it? Okay. The to yeah, so, so that epigenetic imprinting happens, but it's associated with the mother and father's epigenetics. And so that happens... You know, they're, they're, those identical twins will be virtually identical at birth. And then, you know, it, it's just their influence throughout time that creates uh, differences in, in those patterns. So I think this is run, already starting to run a little long. So I, and I'm not sure if we solved the question about whether or not evolution has good science. This is back it up. Yeah, so, <laughs> so I think um, we talked really a lot about how the evolution works and, and you know, what the what we've seen, but, but we really didn't get into the, the data that demonstrates, you know, why we know these things. And I think that's part of bringing in Sonia is, you know, she's a scientist that, that does these things exactly. You know, she, she works with genetics. She actually, you know, has changed the genetics of species to see what happens, you know? Um, and, and so, uh, she's a, an engineer of, 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 of biology. Um, and so, I think it's important to know that, that we this is somebody who does that work and, and who, you know, understands those types of things very, very well. And so when we talk about, you know, this is how this stuff works, you're talking to somebody who if if it didn't work, they wouldn't be able to do their job. Right. Like my job right now, I'm, I'm actually working on gene therapies is literally to say, like, somebody has a broken gene. How do we fix that gene and put it into their body? And that's not just getting the gene to the body. It's figuring out how much of it to make and how to control how much of it's made and when it's made and all of that. So all yeah. that regulation, genetic evolution stuff that we're talking about is what I do every day. Yeah. That said, appeal to authority isn't the best way to, to prove a point by any means. So yeah. maybe if people are, are still stoked after this episode, we can do a more data-oriented one later. Yeah. And, you know, if you're interested in this episode, absolutely write us. You know, we'll... We'll talk. We can do another episode that really talks a lot more about the data behind evolution. You know, we talked in the in the climate change one. We talked about why it is that we know what's happening there, and so we can do the same thing here if it's something that people are interested in. You know, if if you are, write us feedback at breakingbadscience.com. Um, you know, reach out to us on social media at uh, Breaking Bad Science Podcast on Facebook and Instagram send us a message, you know, ask a question. We'd love to hear from anybody who's, you know, interested in any of these types of subjects. And, and share the podcast with anyone you think needs to evolve. <laughs> nice. And uh, uh, we're going to probably right after this record the next episode of the Patrons Only podcast. We're going to talk about another one of the, what I'm calling Jeff Goldblum studies, which are those studies that scientists spent so much time trying to determine if they could that they did not stop to think if they should. And so if you're interested in that type of thing, please reach out to us and uh, uh, become a patron and, and listen to that podcast. There's a Patreon link on the website, top corner. All right. Shanti, anything else? In, in, in conclusion to all this, human beings actually evolved into lizards. So yeah. <laughs> or they, rather they will. 
eventually. Well, they did in the future, right, and then exactly. they tra- time traveled back to the past. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> this has been Breaking Bad Science. Break, 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 break,